following audio is from South Fellowship. For more information, visit us on the web at southfellowship.org. Good morning. Uh, we are so glad that you're with us this morning. We, we're starting a, a new series uh, that we're calling Advent Conspiracy. And um, you may have heard of this before. There's a few pastors in 2006 that um, started asking the question, how can we make Christmas more about what it's really about? Um, and less about the presents and less about the gifts and more about uh, the Jesus that we celebrate. And uh, so this series and, and some of the um, ideas behind it are, are from them. And we're going to put our own sort of twist on it. Uh, but that's where we launch into today is we're going to ask the question, what does it look like to sort of turn Christmas upside down and, and ask God to do a work in our hearts that um, to where we get to the end of Christmas, we don't regret how much we've spent you know, or, or how, what we still have to pay off because of what we spent. Um, and when we get to the end of Christmas, we want to say that this was a, a season. This was a, a month where we really worshiped Jesus, where we grew in our, our depth and knowledge of him and our love for him. And in order to do that, we're going to look at a few different topics, but today I want to just rewind and I want to invite you to sort of reimagine what that first Christmas might have been like. There's going to be a lot of history today, um, and I'm actually pretty excited about that. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of Luke. Luke's going to sort of set the, the scene for us and what this first Christmas was like. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That's a lot of people. I think our voting lines were long. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the countryside, sorry, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. I wonder what that walk was like. I mean, we're talking 80 to 100 miles, depending on which direction and which route you take. 80 to 100 miles with Joseph, this sort of teenage guy, and Mary, his soon-to-be bride, and his pregnant soon-to-be bride, and the child's not his own. I wonder what that hike was like. 80 to 100 miles. I wonder what the, what the conversations were like along the way. It most likely wasn't just Mary and Joseph. There's most likely a little band of people that traveled on this road with him because it was pretty dangerous to travel during this time in the Roman Empire. And so there were people with him. And you wonder, what was the conversation like? My guess is that that was a really long walk, that it probably felt longer than the 80 to 100 miles that it really was, the the 8 to 10 days on the road with a very, very, very pregnant wife, (laughs) or soon to be. 
most likely the route that they took was they left from Nazareth in Galilee, which is sort of up north, and they probably headed directly east and they crossed the Jordan River because nobody goes through Samaria. And if they would have gone straight south, they would have had to pass through Samaria. And and good Jewish people avoided Samaria like the plague. And so they most likely crossed over the Jordan River. And and don't you just wonder, wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall if, if maybe they started to recount what they heard about the crossing of the Jordan the first time when they entered the promised land? Don't you wonder if their hearts were stirred with The anticipation that they felt that very first time when the army was on the east side of the Jordan and Joshua boldly led them across the Jordan River. If you remember, you can read about it. They they set their foot into the river and the river stopped. At flood stage, it stopped. And I wonder if on this day, as they travel from Galilee to Bethlehem, if they retell the story. Do you remember when... Do you remember when our, 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 our forefathers first entered this land? Do you, remember, do you remember when the water stopped? At flood stage, the water stopped. It just dried up. And I wonder if the thought in their mind, as they're standing there, Joseph, very pregnant Mary, I wonder if the thought in their mind is, I wish that God would show up again. Because that God stops the raging rivers. But the God that we see now, the God all around us now, doesn't seem to be stopping a whole lot of anything. The God around us now doesn't seem to be showing up. And the God around us now, that, that God back then, that God spoke to his people. But this God, this God right now, seems pretty silent. We're listening pretty close. You wonder if the the victories and the wars that they fought back then, you wonder if they retold the stories, but I I bet they retold them in sort of an, an empty, hollow, sort of folkloric way of a story, but not history. A story that they'd heard that had been passed down, but that just started to grow hollow, started to grow empty, started to just become like an echo because of the way that they were living now. See, Luke gives us a great time stamp. So we can go back and we can figure out what that walk might have been like and what they might have been walking through and what might have been in the back of their head. You see, Luke tells us that there's this decree, this this instruction that comes straight from the throne of Caesar Augustus. Now, here's the deal with Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus was the the, the Roman emperor. He was born in 63 BC. He took the throne in, in 31 for solely him, and by 27, so four years later. Uh, Caesar Augustus had unified the Roman Empire. This was quite the feat. Quite the feat. It was the first time that the Roman Empire had really been solidified under one ruler. And so Augustus was looked to as being quite the guy. Quite the guy. 
We may know him, you may know him, you may have heard about him, read about him, because he instituted what is now referred to as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Roman peace. In fact, all throughout the Roman world, there was a few mantras that that sort of were passed around, a few declarations about Caesar, and one of them was that Caesar, Augustus, was the prince of Peace was the prince of peace. In fact, whenever a new province was enveloped into the Roman Empire, word around, word around the empire would spread. And this word was in the Greek was called euangelion. It means good news, but it's where we get our English word gospel from. And so when Luke writes... In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. We can go back and we can look that Caesar Augustus instituted the the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and that whenever a new province was enveloped into it, he was declared the Prince of Peace and that he was bringing good news. He was bringing gospel to the empire. But this peace was a little bit different. Uh, This peace came at... A pretty significant cost. This peace looked a little bit more like war than, than peace, to be honest. You see, you can have an absence of war and call it peace, but true peace isn't just an absence of war. It's a presence of life. And the Pax Romana never brought life. It only brought an absence of war because here's what the Romans would do. In absolute brutality, when they were going to conquer a new province or a new city or in a new town. Caesar knew something. He knew that the way that you stop a revolt is you squelch it before it even starts. And so all across the known world, Rome would march in with its huge army and they would take the, the brightest and the strongest and the most prominent men, the businessmen, the warriors in each town And they would drag them outside of the city and they would put up a a Roman invented torture device called a cross and they would nail them to it. The best and the brightest. So it's a good way to stop a rebellion. You'd take out anybody that might be willing to start one. And indeed, that's what they did. And so when I say that their peace looked a little bit different than what you might expect, it was. It was a peace through oppression rather than a peace through life. Look at some of the things that were said about the Roman Empire. This is a quote about Germanicus, who was one of the Roman generals in the army. It says, to the extent To extend the scope of the raid, the Caesar divided his eager legions into four bodies and for 50 miles around wasted the country with sword and flame. Neither neither age nor sex inspired pity. Places sacred and profane were raised indifferently to the ground. The troops escaped without a wound. They'd been cutting down men half asleep, unarmed or dismembered. I mean, they used this shock and awe strategy where, where the army would go ahead and they would, they would burn everything, they would pillage everything, and then they would come in and they would set up their government. The, the, the Pax Romana. 
you wonder if as Mary and Joseph and whoever they were with were going along the road and, and, and you wonder what they saw. You wonder what cities they passed where they knew somebody in that town that had met its maker because of the same Caesar Augustus whose decree went out and said, register. This is Josephus recounting just after Christ. It says, Titus conquered Judea. 500 or more were crucified daily by the Romans. Out of rage and hatred, they amused themselves by nailing their prisoners on wooden crosses. So great was the massacre that there was not enough crosses for the bodies. In fact, many times they would crucify more than one person on a given day on the same cross. Over 500 by Titus and years before when Jesus was a teenager in a town just right near where he grew up, over 2,000 people were crucified in one day. In one day. A Greek historian named Polybius came across a city that had been destroyed by the Romans and, and his recount in his mind was with human and animal corpses everywhere, it seems to me that they do this for the sake of terror. Welcome to Israel during the time of this 80 to 100 mile you, wonder, you have to wonder what's going through their mind. I mean, by this time, angels have come to them and declared that, that the Savior of the world is going to be born. But you wonder how far off that sounded. You wonder who they've lost along the way. You wonder who from their family had met their maker because of this Caesar. And you just wonder the stories that they tell as they cross the Jordan River. This God has to seem so far off because this Caesar seems so present. So present. In fact, this Caesar was not only the military ruler, but the Romans instituted what is now known as the imperial cult, which meant that they worshipped this same Caesar Augustus as God. And whenever they would come to a new province, to a new town, they would set up temples to this Caesar, to Caesar Augustus. They would make declarations like, Caesar is Lord. Sound familiar? In fact, after Julius Caesar, who was Caesar Augustus's father, after he died, he was deified. He was deified. He was, he was named a god. Which meant that when Caesar Augustus, who, by the way, was the first emperor to ever be deified while he was still alive, when he was deified, word throughout the Roman Empire spread, and their mantra about this Caesar was that he is the son of Anything ringing some bells? He's <laughs> the son of God. Listen to the way that the poet Horace put it. He says, upon you, Augustus, however, while still among us, that's key, while still among us, we already bestow honors. <laughs> we set up altars to swear by in your name. 
and confess that nothing like you will arise hereafter or ever has arisen before. So whenever Rome conquered a place militarily, they'd also usher in their religion and they would set up little groups, little bands of worshipers that would get together in, in these communities that they referred to as ecclesias, the Greek word for churches, that would worship Caesar Augustus. They would worship him as the Prince of Peace, the one who ushered in a peace that the world had never known before. They would worship him as the Son of God, deified while he was still alive. They referred to him as God incarnate. They set up these altars to worship him. He was declared the one who was to come. Listen to the way that Virgil puts it. And he says, the most divine Caesar. We should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards disillusion, he restored it once more and gave to the whole world a new aura. Caesar, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all hopes of earlier times. And surpassing all the benefactors who preceded him, and whereas, finally, the birthday of the god Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning of good news, gospel, considering him, therefore, let a new era begin from his birth. So the Romans proposed this God. We will mark time by his birth, by his coming. I mean, can I just be so bold as to point out the irony? This is the way that the poet Virgil wrote and sort of summarized about Augustus. He's the one who is to come. He will be the divine king of salvation, they believed, for whom all mankind has waited. He will annihilate the evil of the past and will free the people from unceasing fear. This Augustus, this Caesar, this God will be the one who frees people and ushers in Peace. He will establish a universal empire of peace and will lead in the golden age for the blessing of a renewed humanity. I wonder if uh, along that way, Mary and Joseph on this 80 to, 100, 80 to 100 mile hike, you wonder if they started tossing around these sayings about the Caesar. I, I wonder if he's the one who was to come. The angels said that that you're carrying the Savior, but it sure seems like this Caesar has a corner on that market right now. They say that he's the Prince of Peace, but God is saying something completely different. You wonder if some of the mantras, you wonder if they discuss the, the mantra of, they say that this Caesar is Lord, Savior. It's something interesting. This is just a side note. In 17 BC, there was this star that had shot through the sky and the astronomers saw it and they 
thought to themselves that it reminded them of a coin, a coin that on one side had Julius Caesar and on the opposite side had a depiction of Caesar Augustus. And on the coin it said, shining with the brilliance of the great heavenly Savior. It was made 23 years earlier, but this coin was really prominent in the Roman Empire. And so when they saw this star, they declared, this is our God. Caesar is our God. And this star is a sign of his coming. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take 12 days and we're going to celebrate. We're going to call those days Advent. 17 B.C. And these 12 days were focused around worship. They were focused around the declaration that Caesar is not only God, but that he's a mediator between God and man, and that he is the forgiver of all sins and transgressions. He goes from just being a ruler to being a mediator. Listen to the way that this is put in a hymn that they sung during that Advent. Augustus is the savior of peace who has brought a golden age to the world. May it last with increasing splendor from age to age now and forever more. Crazy. You wonder if those songs are songs that people still sung as Mary and Joseph loaded up everything that they probably had and went on a 80 to 100 mile hike to write their name in a census. This Caesar would be the hope of the world. N.T. Wright, the prominent New Testament scholar, points out that emperor worship, the, the worship of the Caesars was so common that it would have been both obvious and uncontroversial. Just accept it. Very normal. And I wonder if in contrast with the declaration of Caesar being Lord and then the hope that Caesar brought and the peace that he was going to usher in, I wonder if this passage in Isaiah started to ring around in their heads a little bit. See, like about 700 years earlier, Isaiah had wrote, For unto us a child is born... To us a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, notice the similarities. You're a smart group. I'm sure you're tying them together. There will be no end on the throne of David and of his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish these things. Now, one of two thoughts are going through Mary and Joseph's mind along this hike. One, this is a distant cry. That either God had not been good on his word and he wasn't going to be good on his word. Or... That last line that says the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. You wonder if they clung on to that on this hike, on this march, and said, God, now's the time. Now's the time. We're, We're tired of the situation that we're in. 
I mean, the only reason that they have to take this walk anyway is because they've been displaced off of their familial, familial land. Nobody ever left their land in that day. Your land was a part of who you were. The only reason you would leave is, one, you couldn't pay the taxes on the land anymore, or two, Rome came in and ushered you out. So the walk in and of itself has to feel like the longest walk ever. It's a walk home. It's a walk to where you wish your home still was. It's a walk home to where you wish was still your home, and it's a walk to be taxed even more. See, in the Roman Empire, it was not uncommon to be taxed between 80 and 90% of your total income. And the only reason that Caesar takes another census is to be more specific in the way that he taxes people. So 97%, ballpark, 97% of the people in the Roman Empire that spread as far as the sun, they said, 97% of those people live in poverty anyway. You wonder if that's going through Mary and Joseph's mind as they walk back to Bethlehem. Man. And then this ringing, this echo upon his shoulders, the government will stand. He's the, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the true Prince of Peace. Mary and Joseph, they walked there 80 to 100 miles. And in Mary's belly is not only a baby, but a revolution. It's not just a child that's being born. It's a declaration that's coming. That Caesar is not our God. But that Jesus is. Look at the way that Luke writes this in his gospel. And you have to catch the, the sort of the intricacies of what he writes because he is, he is inviting us not to a religion, but to a revolution. It says in verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region where the shepherds were out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Typically the response when an angel shows up. And the angel said to them, fear not. You wonder what they, I mean, this is just for free, but you wonder if they went, okay, thank you. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news. Gospel. Euangelion. They've heard good news before. They heard good news. They heard good news triumphed when the Roman army came through and conquered them. They heard good news before, but this was a different kind of good news. I bring you good news of great Joy that will be for all people, for unto you, born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
Notice all the similarities between this Caesar that's been set up as the Son of God and this Jesus Messiah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, who's entering the world, the Savior, Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly there with the angel, a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, what? Peace among those whom he is pleased. See, here's the truth of what Luke is writing about. When you understand its historical context and the way that it's couched in a very real empire with a very real ruler, with a very real declaration and belief by their people that this is God, what you see in the Gospel of Luke is that you and I, as a follower of Jesus, and yeah, we're finally in the notes section. This part won't take that long, I promise. (laughs) What you see is that followers of Jesus, long before they're ever invited, if they are ever invited into a religion, they're invited into a revolution before they're invited into a religion. See, this is an invitation. Luke is presenting and God is making an invitation to his people to be part of a different way to go about living. A different declaration. We aren't going to rely anymore on Caesar to be our God. But we have, are firmly convinced that Jesus is Lord. In fact, one of the main declarations of the Roman Empire, one of the main declarations about the Caesar is that very phrase. It would have been so familiar that upon shaking somebody's hand and introducing yourself, one of the mantras, one of the sayings that you would have said one to the other is Caesar is Lord and Savior. And so, I mean, this isn't just the book of Luke, but you look at the book of Acts when Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given by which men, among men, by which we must be saved. Do you know they had Roman coins in that day that said the exact same thing about Caesar? See, see, you're invited not into a religion, but into a revolution. Into a declaration that it's not Caesar who's God, it's Jesus who's Lord. And so it begs us during this Christmas season to ask ourselves the question, what are we hoping in to save us? What's our hope in? Is our hope in a governmental system to save us? Is our hope in some sort of life that we have in our heads, some dream that we have where our family's perfect and they're all in line. Is that what we hope will save us? Is the money in our bank account what we hope will save us? You see, there may not be a capital C Caesar anymore who rules on the throne, but there is an invitation to each one of us every single day of our lives by a lowercase c Caesar to say, will you live for me instead of Jesus Christ? Will you, will, you, will you be a part of this kingdom and declare this God as Lord and Savior? Or will you live under the reign and rule of Jesus? 
You see, and, and that's what this series, this Advent Conspiracy, is going to be all about. Is it's going to re-examine, we're going to get the chance to re-examine which reign and rule are we hoping for? Whose declarations are we living under? Where is our hope grounded and founded? And here's the deal, friends. If we really believe in the revolution that Jesus started and that God instigated through him, it means that we live very, very differently than people who are still under the rule and the reign of the quote-unquote Caesars. There's just a few ways in this passage that I saw this played out and ways that we see this revolution happening. We get to be part of a peace that comes through sacrifice versus a stability that comes through oppression. See, the mere fact that God would clothe himself in humanity as a sacrifice, but the fact that he would walk to the cross is a scandal. Is a scandal. And Jesus is saying, where is your peace going to be found during this holiday season, during the life that you have in general? Where are you going to find peace? See, because we all know that peace is not just the absence of war, but it's the presence of life. And this is a God who says, will you come into me? Will you find hope in me? Will you rest your life upon me? Will you live a life of faith? Because I want to be good to you. And I have been through the cross. I love the way that Paul writes it in the book of Romans. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, here's the deal. If you feel pressed down, if you feel downtrodden, if you feel like the joy has been sucked out of you, may I assert that I think you're probably part of a religion rather than a revolution. Because this is a God who says, will you live under my grace? Will you live under my reign? Will you live under my rule? And every system of the world wants to suck the life out of you and keep you down. And this reign and this rule is designed to bring you life through faith. See, what the Caesars got wrong was that peace is way more than the absence of war. It's the presence of life. Second thing we see is that because of this revolution, we're invited to a joy that's offered to all rather than a payment that's required of all. See, the payment in this system, in this way of viewing the world through faith in Jesus Christ, the payment was paid by one for all, for all time. And every other system of of religion, of viewing the world says, what can I get from you? And what Jesus says is, I want you to receive from me want you to receive from me. Look at the way that this appears in this passage of Luke. I mean, once you see this in the text, it's everywhere. These two contrasts. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, if you have your own Bible, circle it, underline it, star it, all the world should be registered. And I don't know if you caught it. In the same way, in 
contrast to this, all the world being registered, what Luke writes in chapter 10 is, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. And so we have to step back. We have to step back and ask the question, are the things that I'm living for, are the gods in my life, are they inviting me to something or demanding something from me? And see, here's what you can know, because this God, the God of the scriptures, needs nothing from you. That's a beautiful thing. Because you know that when he asks something of you, it's not because he needs it. See, Caesar needed something from the world. He needed money to build his army and to build his roads and to keep his peace and to expand his kingdom. But this God, the God of the scriptures, this baby born in a manger needs nothing from you. So you can have full confidence that whenever he asks something of you, it's for your joy. It's for your joy. See, the Caesar takes... Jesus gives. And I want to just take a moment to say, in light of that, can we just appreciate the irony that the way we mark the beginning of the Christmas season is by people getting run over in Walmart to grab trinkets and toys that they probably already have some of that will be opened by somebody and played with for maybe a week and just the insanity of watching this happen. You have to, we have to ask, what throne are we bowing down around? Is this, a, is this a throne where we're offered life or something's demanded from us? Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't buy presents this year. I'm not. What I am saying is don't, don't lose touch with your heart as you do it. And you have to ask yourself, which kingdom are you participating in? Whose reign are you living under? Is this a kingdom of a Caesar who says, I want something from you? You need this in order to be happy? Or is this a God who says, I want to give to you and bless you in spite of you in many cases? When we enter into the revolution that Jesus invites us to. We get to live a life defined by the presence of a king in a stable rather than a dictator on the throne. I mean, the contrast of the Caesar with all of his men and all of his palaces and all of his money and his declaration that he is God and his little coins that prove it. And you have Jesus in the corner of this empire, born in a feeding trough for animals. Can I be honest? As I've thought about that this week, I've been convicted that so much of my life and so much of the time, I want that king who reigns in that way, who reigns on the the throne, who who I worship in shiny, good-looking places, not on a dirt ground in a stable. 
But I wonder what it might be like to be invited back, maybe for the first time, to be invited back to that stable, to this God who's a king in a manger rather than an emperor on a throne. I wonder what it might be like to worship him this Advent season, this Christmas season. You see, there's no room in the end. There's no room in the empire for this king. And in fact, we'll see the way that that plays out later on in scripture and the fear that that inspires. But I wonder if in our lives, if there's room for a king in a stable. Because I think if we're honest, many of us want the dictator on the throne. And so we follow, we have to follow the trail of our time, the trail of our thoughts, the trail of our money to see which of these two thrones we bow down at. Do we bow at the feet of the baby in the stable? Or do we walk to the dictator on the throne? I love the way that Paul goes so far as to say. Oops. I love the way that Paul goes so far as to say in the book of Philippians in chapter 3, I'll just paraphrase it, that this world is no longer our home, that we are citizens of heaven. And, and friends, that doesn't take a break for this month. It doesn't take a break so we can celebrate Christmas. We still live under his reign and his rule. And that has huge implications for us. And I just want to end with a challenge. That this Christmas, that this Christmas, we reconsider how we might live in the revolutionary kingdom of Jesus rather than the kingdom of the world. Here's what... Caesar knew. Here's what everybody in the Roman Empire knew. And here's why they revolted so strongly about, uh, against Jesus. You only have room for one ruler. One. That's it. We only have room for one ruler. And so the question over the next month is going to be, which kingdom are we going to be a part of? Which king are we going to submit to? Which king are we going to come to and worship? Are we just going to get in line with everybody else and spend money that we don't have to celebrate one day that's fleeting in nature, that's gone, and the next day we go, I can't wait for next Christmas? Or are we going to worship and celebrate in a way that points us back to this king and this kingdom who reigns forever? Hey, here's my guess. My guess is you haven't heard anybody say, maybe in your whole life, that Caesar is Lord. And as hard as he tried to hold on to his kingdom, and as hard as he tried to build his kingdom, it passed. It's gone. It is no longer. Possibly the greatest kingdom in the history of civilization wiped out. But the kingdom of Jesus, the revolution of this baby born in a manger, lives on. And the scriptures promise the gates of hell will not prevail against that kingdom. See, that's a kingdom that you can choose to be a part of today. That's a kingdom you can choose to be a part of tomorrow. And that's a kingdom that should you choose to be part of, you will be part of forever. Hey, 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 it's a kingdom that's going nowhere. 
which I would submit is a great investment of your time, your money, your resources, your energy. So which kingdom are you going to be a part of? Whose reign are you going to sit under? My hope and my prayer for you and for me during this season is that we may not live under the reign of the Caesars of our world who want something from us, who demand things of us, but that we might live under the sacrificial, life-giving peace that only Jesus of Nazareth offers. So we're going to explore how do we, in this season, how do we worship fully? How do we spend less? How do we give more? And how do we love all? Because I don't know about you, but I'm not all that interested in being part of a religion but a revolution. <laughs> Sign me up. Jesus. Thank you for listening to audio from South Fellowship, located in Littleton, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about South Fellowship, visit us on the web at southfellowship.org.